Um, well, I think, uh, I don't know, I'm only going by what I hear, you know, I mean, I don't know myself about the position of, of therapy at some point, but uh, the general feeling was that I was getting from people was that uh, therapy was very good at getting people in touch with their stuff, but didn't quite know what to do with it when it was up. That's the, you know. And uh, it was through research, wasn't it, by John Teasdale here in Cambridge? Mm. And of course, Kabat-Zinn, bringing it to pain management, depression, anxiety. I mean, according to John, um, it was something like a 90% success of mindfulness and uh, panic. See? Of not going back into panic, you know, fears with us to the bitter end. Um, and uh, it's really understanding what the Buddha means by dukkha by suffering and I think once we're clear on that you can see the role of mindfulness in, in undermining suffering it's just it's pretty uh, you know it's there in the I mean he puts it in the second noble truth see? see I mean the first is just basic statement that there is this dukkha we'll define that in a minute and the second one is the cause of it which is desire uh, and the third one is very hopeful there is an end to it and the fourth, of course, is the path leading to it, the actual practice. So what does he mean by this word dukkha? It, it translates as hard to bear. Uh, but what he's referring to are uh, three types, as he lists them. One is the, uh, uh, the suffering caused by um, attachment to uh, sensual pleasure. Uh, the next one is an attachment to becoming. And the next one is an attachment to annihilation okay. so <clears throat> it's a case of um, separating out what you would call just the natural pain for want of a better word of being a human being so just the physical pain I mean, uh, he, he wasn't uh, he wasn't as though he got rid of physical pain he died very uncomfortably with some sort of ga gastroenteritis and he uh, he once asked Ananda to take over a speech because his back was hurting so whatever he means by dukkha, this suffering, he doesn't, uh, he's not referring to physical pain as such. And uh, he's not, in, in our state of non-enlightenment, you might say, he's not, talking to, he's not talking about the primary level of mental suffering. So uh, when we feel, uh, in an obvious way, when we feel depressed or anxious or something like that, uh, there isn't actually any suffering there in his terminology there is just this mental state now to understand that uh, you have to um, go into his psychology which he called dependent origination it basically says that uh, something, something arises dependent on something else that's all and therefore it doesn't have its own existence it doesn't have its own uh, reality base you can say everything is interdependent I'm sure you've heard that uh, <coughs> but it's gone and on about that. This was uh, turned into a sort of universal idea by you know the Mahayana. But in 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 the original teaching, you might say, the Buddha stayed very close to to the human actual experience. He was very wary of turning anything into some sort of metaphysics. So he, he really, if, when you read the Theravada scriptures, he's right there with the human being. You see? and what we experience, our personal experience within this globe of consciousness that through which we experience the world. So, 
um, this this problem of desire um, uh, if, we, if we begin by what is our essential mistake so the Buddha is saying that somehow we've we've made some mistake somewhere which is tr- often translated as a sort of delusion and uh, this fundamental mistake is a is a mistake of relationship see and the relationship is um, to seek happiness in a world that's not going to deliver if only by the fact that it it's it just doesn't stay it's always in a process of change so as soon as you think you've got you've you, you've entered into this heavenly place in whatever way you might define that for yourself uh, it always it always moves on it always comes to an end see so you know when you have a great party and somebody says we must do this again you know you're heading for disaster because <laughs> the second time is never it loses juice so uh, this idea of um, seeking happiness in the wrong place so um, the fundamental position then is one of um, trying to seek this happiness in a world that's transient and doesn't deliver and the more you accumulate the more you feel safe so the more friends you have the more feeling of friendship you feel safe the more money you have in the bank you feel safe you're always moving back to this business of safety you see and that that fundamental feeling of safety is resting upon a deep understanding somewhere within our being for want of a better word that we're not safe that there is death see and so we cover that up by making something of life so we we move towards life and what it can give us and we make ourselves feel safe by all sorts of little mechanisms unfortunately once we've accumulated this stuff it has to be defended against marauders you see and against the government so you have to build up a certain aversion see to to get the energy to to uh, get rid of the enemy if the enemy looms a little too large well you got to run for it so there's your three basic dispositions in life coming from this fundamental delusion or mistake about seeking happiness real happiness not transient happiness real permanent meaningfulness real permanent existential uh, groundedness right in the transient world the business of acquisition accumulation aversion and fear so from these three dispositions we move into every moment right it's always there underneath it's not that every moment demands these things but they're always there as potential and we move into actions of speech thought uh, thought in our head you see and then it moves out into speech and then into action once you've done that you see you've you've created something within yourself you've created a conditioning right and it's these conditionings that are driving your destiny see so these conditionings that we built up uh, unwittingly in childhood and in early early um, you know up to teenage and places and, and, and that sort of age and even beyond people who are not aware who are not mindful uh, these this compendium of habits perf- is basically what we we call our character our personality and it drives our destiny you see and it's only when we hit walls that we we begin to question 
normally speaking we blame everybody else that's much easier you know society parents everybody that fault uh, but slowly wake up that maybe this what maybe this crash has come about because of my, a certain way that I'm behaving so when the Buddha was uh, fully liberated the way we, we say he had three knowledges three knowledges came to him the first one was that he was completely he had emptied out he'd come to the end of these what, what he called defilements uh, these wrong ways of, of um, of relating, uh, there was nothing. There was nothing. There was nothing unwholesome in his heart. There was nothing unskillful in his thinking anymore. Right, he, that had been completely taken away because of some deep delusion had been destroyed. Right, we'll come to that. In a minute. And uh, then he, he he had memories of all his past lives, <coughs> and he saw that it was his ethical decisions which had moved him into hell realms, into hellish places, and then finally driven him to his liberation. And then he saw beings moving from one place to another, uh, driven by this same, this same, uh, this, the same cause of karma. So, uh, what he's saying there is that um, our uh, consciousness, for want of a better word, is... Um, is in a process of relationship so everything is to do with ethics see we we in our uh, we in our time we medicalize things right? or you socialize things so you do things because your parents have done this to you and all that sort of stuff or uh, you've got some sort of illness or something like that remember that our forebears would talk about being a bit off or got out of the wrong side of bed or feeling heavy but now we talk about depression See, and it becomes a sort of mental dis-ease. <coughs> when you go to the East, they don't they 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 physicalize it, they embody it. They say that they're feeling down or they're feeling heavy, uh, but they don't turn it into a psychological thing. You see, so as soon as you turn it into a psychological problem, then it becomes you have to move towards therapy. And in a sense, it takes away the personal responsibility we have for having constructed these mental states that's the problem so it's a personal responsibility of having constructed depression anxiety now uh, the, the, the understanding is that when something comes towards us either a physical pain somebody hits me on the nose or some anger from somebody that somehow they're causing this reaction that their anger is causing my anger that this uh, clout on the nose is causing my grief and because I can't get my own back I feel very depressed I once went to a group that was um, a, a group for depressive uh, people suffering from depression and we sat in a circle and everybody went everybody started telling everybody else how depressed they were which was extraordinarily depressing <laughs> And then when we got round to one person who said he wasn't depressed, he, he was really happy, he was obviously up on a bit of a high, everybody looked very jealous and <laughs> glum, <laughs> you see. <laughs> and uh, everything they said, well, I'll give you an example. The lead of the group said, uh, a week ago or so or something like that, I tripped over the pavement and, and hurt myself. So I wrote to the council and asked for compensation. The council wrote back, 
and said that it wasn't on, he wasn't going to get a penny. So he got very angry and then he got depressed. And it was the council with this pavement that had caused this depression, you see. <laughs> now, in Buddhist, in the Buddhist psychology, that's not actually what's happening. What's happening is some information is coming towards us and the reaction that we have to it the response for want of a better word reaction that we have to it is actually coming from a different center it's not coming from this person it's not coming from the pain on my nose see? the reaction is pain on my nose which I'm well aware of huh? and then inside me coming from a different place is this little being who's quite frightened because somebody's just hit them on the nose and the way you respond to somebody hitting you on your nose is you get very angry, right? Unless they're very big, and then you run for it, see? And that's coming from this inner centre of the heart, not from the bump on the nose, see? So when uh, we get, uh, these days, you know, a lot of people are, are suffering from this unemployment. Now, when you become unemployed, as I sort of remember it, uh, there's a loss of your wealth, there's a loss of your status, there's, a, there's a, an immediate loss of your place, right? Now that is, that's bad enough, as it were, because you have to re, you know, reorganize yourself, you, you might say. But on top of that, uh, there's something else happens, which is to become depressed about it. So that's this inner reaction to a situation, right? And what, what, uh, what mindfulness is drawing us to understand is that that isn't necessary see that second part is not necessary so the Buddha always talks about these two darts the first dart is just just the pains and sorrows and woes of ordinary living you know on this planet and the second one was completely self-manufactured as a relationship to what was happening and that relationship is our ethical position see Either we're trying to accumulate something, or we're trying to push it away, or we're trying to run for it. That's a relationship, it's an ethical relationship. Now the Buddha himself didn't have a, a brilliant time all the time. You know, he, towards the end of his life, he, I think he got quite worried because the two great kings who had been his great supporters, one was murdered by his son, and the other one died naturally, and the two sons who became kings didn't like him at all. In fact, one plotted with uh, Devadatta, a dastardly fellow uh, who was a monk and tried to kill him I mean, this is story, yeah? and the other prince actually he married into the Sakya family his family and because they thought he was of a lower caste they gave they they secretly gave him a slave girl I mean the you know the untouchable and uh, when he found this out of course he was raging and he got on his elephant with all his other elephants and started going to destroy the Sakyas the Buddha turned up and says, you know, hey, what's going on here, is it? And he got a bit of sense and he got and he rode back, you see. But after a while he got into his heart again. He got on his elephant and off he went again, you see. And the Buddha said, whoa, turned up and said, hey, what's happening, you see? So he said, okay. So he went back again, you see. Third time on his elephant, whoa, and the Buddha turns up, come on, he says, you know. So he turns back. The fourth time the Buddha says, I can't do anything. That's it. He won't listen now. And of course he did. The, uh, the Sakyas were... Um, Many of them were killed, they had to move their capital elsewhere. So uh, these were very worrying times for him towards the end and he, he obviously was concerned about the order, the support of the order, because as you know these religions grow because of temporal support. 
Yeah? I mean, in, in, in China, for instance, whenever the emperor was Buddhist, you were away. When he wasn't, you ran for the hills. And that's how they developed this Kung Fu, you see, sort of self-defense. Uh, in our rule as a monk, we can defend ourselves. You're not supposed to attack, we can definitely defend yourself. So that whole, that whole way of, of uh, combat in which you're trying to use the other person's energy to undermine them, to destroy them, you know? And as they pass you by, you just a quick rabbit chop, you know? So <laughs> just finish it off, you know, good graph. So, uh, um, now where was I? See, I go off on these tales and I forget where I am. So, yes, so we've got, we're still struggling with this word dukkha and how to deal with it and where mindfulness comes in. So, the Buddha's saying, you see, if you put your attention in between the original pain, whether it comes physically at you, like you bump your head and uh, you catch your finger in the door or something, or whether you put it within yourself as some old conditioning arises, some depression, some sadness, some guilt, some shame, you see. If you put your attention there, upon that object, you see, and you observe this relationship you have with it, of indulging it, see, indulging our depression, you know, I'm so depressed, I'm depressed, you know, all this self-hatred, you know, I, I'm terrible, I'm useless, nobody loves me, and uh, it's true, I'm horrible, things like that. And, you, and you're working, you, you're actually developing your, that, that particular conditioning by this indulgence, you see, sort of a false humility. So by, by observing that reaction, you're cutting in between the original suffering or pain that's coming up, physical or mental, and this reaction, you see. When this reaction falls away, you can stay with the original pain and you've discovered a sort of an equanimity with it, a non-reactive position, you see. And when you do that, uh, you find that this original pain, whether it's the pain in the nose, the physical thing, or something in the heart as a, a mental state, begins to evaporate, see. And if you do it long enough, you realise that actually there's some therapy going on. The heart's purifying itself, it's healing itself. You begin to realize you don't have to do anything. All you have to do is be aware of it. But that awareness demands a certain ability to bear with, to bear with the condition. See? And what we also discover is that the, the heart cannot purify itself except into consciousness. And it'll either do it as a felt emotional state or as a physical, as a physical illness. Right, psychosomatic illness. So this uh, ability to to cut to cut in between the original given uh, uh, unfortunate state and the reaction to it is, you might say, the point of escape. That's how he would put it. There's the escape. The escape from what? The escape from further suffering and past suffering. Right? The escape from oh, sorry, suffering caused by the past. Right? So when you when you realize the power of that mindfulness to be with, you know, suffering, then uh, you obviously want to be there more and more. Um, <laughs> Tell them they'd be expelled if they make any noise. Uh, so this, <laughs> so this, um, uh, this mindfulness that the Buddha's talking about. So there's your, 
that's mindfulness at its most obvious position in the wheel in, in the Four Noble Truths is desire the cause of suffering so remember desire here is the desire to accumulate the desire to uh, annihilate to get rid of what you don't want and the desire to run from fear you see so that you might say that that there if, if a person can see that in their depression in their anxiety in their rage in their revenge and all that, they can see that you see they, they found an escape from suffering so you can see how it's very helpful in all these therapies to get a person to find that position within themselves uh, it's talked about as the objective observer the objective feeler or the one who knows the one who experiences so uh, by objectifying what we experience we find a sort of different place see something which is transcending transcending what we would normally identify with so what do we mean by transcending we mean a we mean by transcending finding a different identity point see? so when we are in the body when we when we are the body we are a body self that's that's who I am uh, children I mean, that's where they live in their bodies you know uh, they don't separate their emotions or thought life they are their bodies in a very embodied way um, we we really can only get to that level by accident you know, like you know, if you trap your finger in a door, see, just for that one mo, one singular sweet moment, you are the body, see, and then you jump out of that and start kicking the door. <laughs> so uh, to be to be a body self, you know, you have to get into sort of high states. I mean, that's why uh, you know uh, the people like these dangerous sports because just for that one moment, they are that experience of uh, you know going through rapids or flying in the air or something. And when you identify with something so totally like that, you feel completely alive. Yeah? In that moment of absorption, there's no you, there's just the action. See? So that's the paradox. We never, we don't, when we're completely happy, we don't know it. See? And as soon as you bounce out of it, you've lost it. What you're aware of is the dregs of, happy, of the happy state. So this ability to absorb into something see? we do it um, many of us do it uh, just at work which we find interesting and you're just absorbed into it uh, people have hobbies like gardening the time passes uh, the garden's been done beautifully but there's not been a sense of somebody doing it so these are our happiest moments you see? and as soon as you jump out of it then you there's something that knows your happiness you've lost that happiness in a way you've objectified it so um, coming out of the body and make and being aware of the body is something you see means that my identity isn't there yeah? I mean my identity will soon re-establish itself if if something is uh, death-threatening life-threatening yeah? so as soon as something uh, uh, threatens my life then I really become my body very quickly see but I can actually find this other position of having a body without being one see? so when I'm looking at my hand you see there's something looking at the hand it's not in the hand so it becomes an object to me see? that's a different relationship I still I still own this hand I still, uh, my relationship with this hand is different from my relationship to your hand if you lost your hand I'd be very compassionate 
See? But if I lost my hand, I'd go berserk. <laughs> That's the difference. <laughs> so, uh, the next identity is, of course, emotion, do you see? So, I am happy, I am sad, and so on and so forth. That's, that's an easy one for us to stay with. You know, we, if it's a good one, we like it. If we don't, we tend to jump out of it and become aware of it. See? Only when you go into it completely do you find yourself becoming mentally ill. Yeah? Or falling into an incontrollable rage. See? So there's that point of identity of I am, you see. If you say I am, you see. In the identity, in, the, in, the, in that moment of identity, there is no I am, there is just the identity. Right? There is just depression, just, ang- just panic. See, In a panic, in a panic situation, you just, you just lose it, you just, you just go for it, and then you wake up out of it. When you become aware of an emotional state, see, it's an object, isn't it? So there's something in us which is no longer identifying with the with the emotional state though fully aware of it see and then there's the mental identity of thought that's even easier I mean we'll go off on these on these thought trips anytime and you just get lost in thought you see and then you wake up and the thought's gone see? Uh, in meditation sometimes you know when this ability to remain as the observer is very very acute you can see thoughts arising and passing away. They don't develop because you're not in there to develop them. But you can see a thought arising and passing away, like a neon light. So you've got these three major identities, right, which you're pulling out of the body with its sensations, feelings, the heart with its emotions, moods, and the mind with its thoughts and images. And when you pull out of that, you've found a different identity. You're now the observer, the feeler, the knower. Huh? And that's the position of somebody who's being mindful in that, uh, mindful of, in this particular case with therapy, uh, mindful of unwholesome, of, uh, of, of uh, painful states, painful mental states. Now that isn't your final position. To be the observer is the, ob- the observer, the feeler, and whatnot. It's not your final position. But the Buddha actually says those who are mindful like that are in the vicinity of, in the, in the neighborhood of Nibbana. So when we're in that state, mainly in the sitting posture, and you find yourself acutely being this observer within all this uh, body, mind and heart, usually the body has to be very still, and the heart <coughs> has to be very calm, and the mind has to be silent. And then there's this very acute sense of the observer, the feeler, you see. So when that comes to you, see, after that experience, ask yourself, what was it like being there? What were the constituents of the observer? See? Because that that point, you see, there's, there's the ability to discover what we really are, which is something transcendent. So it's something which transcends all these identities, even the identity of an observer, of a feeler. And that's what the Buddha is pointing to. Hmm? So when he when he's teaching of not self, it's just this way of saying everything that we experience. If you can objectify it, it can't be you. When you are aware of yourself as a self, as a as an observer, as a feeler, there's something that 
feels itself to be a self. So it can't be that because it's an object. Okay? So you're always moving, you're always taking a step backwards, you see? And when you actually fall off the cliff of the self, that's it. That's what we that's when we realise who we really are. That's the the transcendent point. And that's what the Buddha's referring to when he calls himself the Tathagata. Tathagata means you know, arrived there or, or gone there. And its best translation is the transcendent one, the one who's transcended the psychophysical world. Right? So now this mindfulness, uh, when it comes to just ordinary uh, problems of life, uh, ordinary mental problems like anxiety and lots of stuff, what it does is it allows the person to find that position where they are no longer making things worse by identifying with that emotional state. See, that's the desire, that's this business of, of either uh, you know, saying I am depressed See, as soon as you say, I am depressed, I am depressed, where's the escape? See? But as soon as you say, there's depression, there's an escape, isn't there? You can do something about it if, the, if it's there within yourself. But as soon as you say, I am, that's it, we're locked into a particular type of relationship, this identity with it. So the, the, the ability to maintain that mindfulness stops that identity which is a form of in, which is indulging it which is actually making it worse and allows the original state to manifest and that's what's so difficult is to be with you know these rather you know these very painful mental states and and just be with it in this calm way and feel them experience them fully see and what you're what you're doing is you're saying to your heart manifest your turbulence and it's in that manifestation the turbulence can exhaust itself. See, so that over a period of time, you, you begin to feel this alleviation of all this turmoil within the heart. You know, think twenty-five years. I wouldn't want to give you, you know, any false hope. <laughs> so, uh, this business of indulgence. How do we develop our mental states? See, we develop them through thought. Yeah. It's, through, it's through making up these constant stories that we're actually developing mental states so the first thing is to know that the mind if it's, un if it's not under our control is really working against us so anxiety remember uh, you know, is, is really being anxious you know 99% of the time anxious about things that aren't going to happen you see, because the mind here, in a state of fright, in a state of uncertainty, extends the future outwards. And it always builds up this, this tremendous fearful sort of uh, storyline. The scenario of fear, you know, just extends itself. And um, that's completely unnecessary, because if you come back into the moment, you see, and you feel the fear, and do it anyway, you all know the book, yeah? So you feel the fear... <laughs> You see, and you're letting it go. And then when there's when there's a, when there's an equanimity, when the fear has subsided, then of course you see the situation with much more clarity. See, it doesn't mean to say that you can't see that unfortunate things may happen, but at least it, it takes away this sort of um, the the huge agitation around it, the the exaggeration of it. See, 
So that's the power of your, of your mindfulness, you see, not to get caught up in thoughts driven by unwholesome mental states. Yeah. And you'll do that when we, we do that, when we realize that, when we, when we allow the mind to do that, it gets worse. It's actually developing the mental state. So, um, on a, on, shall we say, a very obvious psychological level, uh, what mindfulness is doing is it's, is it's putting this awareness, this mindfulness, uh, which is our intuitive intelligence. You know, we talk about mindfulness, talk about awareness, but remember that uh, two words always come together in the Buddhist scripture. It's Sanpajano Satyama, which means a intuitive intelligence and awareness. To think of them as two things is really to look at um, the two sides of the same coin. We have it in our language when we say, if you look carefully, you'll see. So the see is the grasping of the situation. So awareness is the ability to look dispassionately, to look from a position to an, an objective position. And as we look, we grasp the situation. We see what's wrong. See? So although um, we say this awareness and intuitive intelligence, it's actually intuitive awareness. And that's the reason I, I, you know, I call this center satipanya because that is the Buddha mind. See, to be in that state, you're in, you know, you're you're actually in a state of en of awakening, right? You can't say awakened, but we can say definitely a state of awakening. See, so uh, when we when we see the power of that to stop us making things worse and to undermine old habits, so that's the point. When these, when this, uh, when these. Uh, mental states come up. Remember, these are conditioning their old habits, and when we're undermining, when we're allowing them to manifest, we're actually we're actually um, allowing that turbulence to exhaust itself. So that's that's the healing. So these turbulences, you know, uh, find it find it harder and harder to hijack our lives. We can stay ab above them, walk with them, uh, see them as our companions. You see, but also to uh, see to turn a certain kindness towards them too, as if you were with somebody who was uh, depressed or anxious. Yeah. So this awareness, this mindfulness, can be saturated, you might say, or flavoured with loving kindness, and that gives us a great strength. It gives us a great um, courage to to stay with the actual state, no matter how long it stays. See, and it's through that process. So, so it's through that process that two things are happening. One is the, the psychological dis-ease is being eased. And the other one is there's a slow recognition of where the escape is from all suffering. See? By, by non-indulgence, non-reactivity, non-aversion, non-fear. And it's seeing that second arrow, as the Buddha would call it, second dart of aversion, fear, pushing away, you see and just allowing that to manifest and die away that we're slowly receding backwards to this place of, of, um, of uh, pure equanimity non, of non-reactivity so it could be uh, you know uh, in, in my understanding it could be that somebody who uh, you know comes into therapy a mindfulness based therapy um, might very easily just by observing the process of how suffering is created find their way to complete liberation 
And one of the uh, insights as you do that, of course, the other two insights, the other two characteristics of existence become uh, obvious to the person as they move along. For a start, they realize that everything is, everything is impermanent because they're watching it. So that it dawns upon them that there's nothing that they're experiencing which remains. Nothing that is, that is permanent. Therefore, everything that we experience is unreliable. You can't rely on it. You can't rely on a relationship lasting. I mean, the person might, you know, think better of it and off, and off, off. <laughs> or, or they die. You see, you can't rely on human beings. It's terrible. You can't rely on your happiness on another human being. I mean, you, you're into a hell realm because because <laughs> you're not in control. The whole point about being happy is that you're in control. See? And if you can't control something, there's always going to be fear that you'll lose control. So this is your attachment coming from this position of I am, see, I am a human, <coughs> I am a human being. See, as soon as you say I am a human being, you know, you're stuck, you see. Because now you've got to seek perfect happiness in this form. And so you're constantly, uh, you're constantly in conflict with the world because it just doesn't deliver. Okay? And that, uh, that, that impermanence uh, you know, it leads you to this beautiful statement by the Buddha. You see, there's nothing in the world worth holding on to. See? And um, one thing you can do with these phrases when you come across them in a book that you're reading and it sort of strikes you is, is to keep repeating them, you know. This is the, um, uh, this is the, um, the, spiritual, the spiritual reading. So you come across a phrase and you keep repeating it, keep repeating it, repeating it in all its inflections, you know. Like there is nothing in the world worth holding on to see there is nothing in the world worth holding on there is nothing in the world worth holding on to see there is nothing in the world worth holding on to see and you keep repeating it and repeating it and you repeat it gently it until you feel a sort of digestion and that means that it's moved from being an intellectual understanding into a disposition it's moving into a disposition and when that when that's really grasping it comes out in your actions in your speech you see so that's your eightfold path you see you know? if it stays at an intellectual level it's it's sterile nothing's nothing's ever going to happen you're going to you're going to sound very clever but it's not, but nothing's ever going to happen it's got to move at that, into the heart you see <coughs> as a disposition so one sees this impermanence, you see. In seeing the world as impermanent, one begins to realize what is permanent within the world. See? So these, these, these qualities of these characteristics are always, this the, are always, making us, are always making us find the opposites. So where the Buddha says this is suffering, he talks about this place, for want of a better word, Nibbana, where there is no suffering. Don't call it happiness. It just says there's no suffering. Because if you say happiness, we immediately uh, associate that with some sort of emotional state. See? So he prefers the word no suffering. And what is able to see that which arises and passes away must itself not be arising and passing away. So another quality of Nibbana is that it's not transient. It's not it's not it's not changing. Yeah? It's, a, it's, it's a state which has a permanency about it and is utterly reliable. Right? That's what he's saying. And then, as you begin to take this position of the observer, two things become more plain to you. Is that uh, your control 
over your body, heart and mind is only apparent. Right? So uh, you can move your body around here and there, but there's very little you can do about, uh, about your bones. You know, like, that's it. Whatever skeleton you've got, you're stuck with it. And you can, you can get rid of bits of it or break bits of it. But, but basically speaking, uh, um, so much of our, of our physical nature is, is a given, isn't it? I mean, we don't even know what's happening, do we? We don't know what, I mean, do we know what's happening now in our liver? Yeah, completely, complete blank as far as I'm concerned. And as, as long as it doesn't hurt, I'm quite happy to leave it alone. See? It's like uh, neurobiology, you see. It tells about all these chemicals and neurons. And stuff. I don't experience any of that. <laughs> I haven't a clue what's going on. All I know is that, you know, I have this, I have this feel, I have these thoughts and images coming up here and I'm aware of feelings and emotions. So my actual experience of life has nothing, you know, has nothing to do with, with, with chemicals and whatnot. Not to say that chemicals don't affect the experience of my life, but that's not what I actually experience, you see. So in thought, you see, I mean, what happens if we become senile? We suffer from Alzheimer's. Who are we then, you see? So this business of pulling out of and looking at something makes us realize, and it's a frightening thing, to realize that actually you're not in control. But it's also beginning to discover a position which is outside it. So this is the transcendent position. The transcendent position, in its absoluteness, cannot know itself. If it knows itself, then it must have an object. If it's an object, then it can't be it. Simple as that. Whatever is an object to awareness can't be the awareness. It's an object. So that's why the Buddha says even Nibbana doesn't have this sense of self. Okay? And that's the process of liberation. The process of liberation is the eventual abandonment and destruction of any idea of a self. That's all there is to it. Now, when we as we experience, these things are not sort of, they don't have to be mind-blowing, you know, like uh, usually explosive sort of experiences. They're, they're sometimes like a drip feed. And over a period of time, you, you sort of wake up and realize actually that you don't see the world as you did 5, 10, 15 years ago. Because it, it's a sort of a slow dawning. That's why the word awakening is so much better than to enlightenment, you know. And... Uh, as you begin to have that, uh, as you begin to, as it were, find this identity, remember that it doesn't stop there. You have to re-enter the psychophysical organism. So you have to, you have to become a person, and it's through the personhood that you begin to express the wisdom that you have. So, in the Buddha's own story, uh, he retreats from life. He goes into these meditative experiences, uh, and when he's fully when he wakes up to what he's actually discovered see his first thought is who can I you know who can I share this with who can I teach see it's a sort of a natural outflow so this eightfold path that he left right understanding right attitude flows naturally into right speech right action and right livelihood see? right livelihood and uh, that that's the way that you begin to understand that this um, this process of mindfulness is actually making you re-engage in life 
in, in a much fuller way because it's not it's not being um, it's not being um, enclosed by a barrier that we call the self see the self the self is always defining the world for its own self benefit and therefore the relationship we have with everybody or anything always has this angle of what's in it for me see when the what's in it for me goes then you get that pure relationship not that there isn't anything in it for you it's just that <laughs> that's not the dominant thought that's not become a barrier it may be a boundary but you can step over boundaries but barriers you can't step over see? so um, you can see how somebody who is who has has entered into a therapy just with the purpose of overcoming panic or or, or depressive mo or grief you know they've had a terrible grief in their lives and they've gone into and they're taught this business of separating the grief from this indulgence so often when people die and we're left with this grief we make the mistake of thinking that the amount of grief I have is the measure of my love so that means that every time your grief begins to disappear you panic and you've got to start grief because you're saying to yourself I don't love this person anymore so you have to grieve again and so it goes on and on it becomes a sort of a, a never-ending sort of indulgence in grief and there's a sort of a deep satisfaction that oh you know I'm so grieving that I must you know I'm so happy that I love this person so much but the grief is actually an expression of your attachment real love allows the person to go on it's like uh, it's like uh, say a parent who won't let the child go on you're holding on to the child you see, but, but when the child is launched into the world there's, there should be happiness you know as well as relief <laughs> So, it's more happiness out. So it's more, like you, you see, you know, parents sees their children and they're happy for them. They don't hold on to them. They stay here, you know. So um, when uh, when a person sees, you see, when a person sees that uh, that grief is something coming out of attachment and allows the grief to pass, stop indulging it, stop confusing it with love, uh, and allowing the person who's passed away to actually pass away and you know and to and to um, to rejoice in the relationship they had and just to let go of that you know let them go then of course the grief disappears the grief begins to just exhaust itself so it's not as though the mindfulness is going to help you get over the grief quicker the process of grief will be determined by the measure of your attachment but it's still going to take three six nine months you know, they say if it goes on longer than that, it's becoming chronic. But if you, but it's, you see, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't stop the suffering. What it does is, it opens you up to it. But it opens you up in a way that it's going to heal the heart. See, so you can see by, by seeing grief. Supposing somebody comes to grief, and they cut in between this business of indulging grief from a wrong understanding that it's an expression of love. So this, 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 this misunderstanding dies away, and the reaction of indulging grief therefore stops the grief now is allowed to arise and pass away and they're beginning to see that it's impermanent see and then they're beginning to see that actually you know I'm looking at it I'm feeling it is not me even if it's only a slight insight see so all the time they're they're discovering this new identity see of being the one who knows so it seems to me that uh, even though a person might enter at the level of deep suffering psychological suffering uh, there's a great possibility that they 
find the way out completely. As the scripture says, in no length of time, so-and-so, so-and-so became fully liberated. And the commentaries gloss that with 25 years in the forest. <laughs> 50 years in the forest. But in no length of time, well, cosmically speaking, that's 25 years. Are there any questions around that? Bhante, um, a lot of what you were saying uh, related to a kind of ex experience of, of, of time impermanence and yeah. passing of things and so on. Um, I wonder if, if you could say a little bit more about the kind of Buddhist experience of time and the importance of the kind of the present. Because um, there's very much an idea of um, letting go of the past not becoming too involved in the future um, and also in, in, a more, in a more deep sense the sort of underlying picture of what reality is is saying in a sense there is no past and future they aren't sort of solid real things at all yeah. and, and, and that's something that can be quite kind of disturbing I think. yeah Well, the mind is um, mind's very clever, isn't it, in, in maintaining a certain continuity for us. And um, in a sense, it'd be difficult to see how you could operate without some level of continuity as to, as to who you are, where your position was in society, what your job was. If you got up in the morning and thought, what am I supposed to be doing today? <laughs> you have to ring around and find out, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be at work. So, <laughs> so there has to be uh, some connection to the past. You have to have known how, you know, it, it puts you in a position of, uh, of, of time in flux, right? And um, time in flux is, is basically a series of events, isn't it? And you, you, you're slotted into that, into that series. And there's a presumption it, it's going onwards, see? Remember that in the, in the West we have this impression that time is linear, it's going somewhere, it has some sort of progress. Whereas in the East and in more ancient cultures it was more circular, it was just going round on itself. You know? uh, that's why in the West we, we often find it very difficult to think of rebirth you know, or reincarnation because we have this, this idea of, of progress as a linear state, you see, that you begin here and you end up somewhere up there. But as I say, uh, this, the more sort of circular idea of time, which is, you know, you find in the East, allows the mind to, um, allows us to uh, create the possibility that, you know, things come round again, things come round again. So, um, and in daily life, you have to know, I mean, if you've got a dental appointment on Monday, you have to reorganize yourself for that dental appointment. See? So you can't lose a reality base of what's actually happening at the level of where you are in society, what you're supposed to be doing, where you're supposed to be going and so on. That's, that's right. But of course the delusion is that uh, this is the way, this is, this is uh, something that's absolute, that has an absolute reality about it. Um, if you walk into a door, there's something absolutely real about that. You know what I mean? It's like it, it's solid and, and it's there and, and you've hurt yourself, see? 
but we know that actually it's just subatomic particles meeting subatomic particles. <laughs> I mean, there's a, 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 another level of reality, you can say, there's actually not much there apart from this energy. This is what we are told. I, I've never experienced that myself. But this is what we're told, that there's this level of reality about the universal living here, which is just energy. It's just, just this frazzled energy. So um, in the belief of continuity, in that sense, there's a belief, an underlying belief, that it's the same person. That's where the delusion is. So even though you see that your face has changed, since you were a child, even in the last five, ten years, uh, you still say, well, it's me. That's me, you see. There's something in us which remains this insoluble, uh, permanent sense of I-ness, of me-ness. See? Even though all our opinions have changed over, over a certain lifetime, uh, there's still me that hasn't changed. Even though all my emotions are constantly changing and moving around, I don't change. See, the sense of I, see? And this sense of I uh, creates a, a permanency mm. dependent on this impermanent relationship, on this impermanent happening in our lives. So it's I that I'm going to the dentist. It's I that I'm thinking. It's I that I'm doing this. And, and this I, you see, substantiates the present moment, turns it into a real thing. See? Now, when you bring your attention to the present moment, into the into this, you know, the here and now, you'll hear that, you know, you, you read that in the literature. Um, you are uh, able to um, stop the this this growth of I. So this is the other uh, the other problem with this <coughs> fundamental delusion of this becoming. See, by always. Uh, in a state of becoming, it's a, st it's a way that we, can, we feel we can control the future. So you're going to do this, uh, you know, uh, I'm going on holiday to this sort of place. When I retire, when I, you sort of try to create a future and it makes you feel very safe because you've got it all worked out, see? The rest of the world doesn't know you've got it all worked out. This is the problem. It's only you know that it's got it worked out. So uh, this sense of I, you see, begins to collapse. It begins to move. As you move into the present moment, you see, and see the present moment in its totality, you're aware of the difference of the next moment and that it's arising dependent on and yet separate from this present moment. See? So there's a, there's a feeling of letting go of that grasping onto time Onto, onto this present, onto a future which you, which you can only imagine. It doesn't actually exist. The future cannot exist, but you imagine it. And what it does is it opens you up to the present moment in a way that allows the potential of that present moment and its expression to be much more available. See? So if, for instance, um, you, you know, your sense of control is about um, the sort of um, the sort of relation, the sort of person you like. Okay, if you go through all your your friends, you see, you'll notice that you like them all. See, that's what. <laughs> if you go through all your enemies, you'll notice that you don't like them. See, so you've split the world into all these people whom you like and all these people. Now, every time you form a friendship, you reinforce this idea of who you like. You see? And without you knowing it, you've put blinkers on. 
because you've defined what is likable and what's likable is what's likable to you right? now if if you're in the present moment much more and you're open to a new person coming towards you see and you haven't got this history of what I like and what I don't like and you're completely open and you're not envisaging some sort of friendship out of this then as as you meet this person you're you're much more open to them and your sense of who you like and what you don't like begins to expand see much more at ease so this whole business of time uh, in Buddhist understanding it's it's a, it's a mental construct it doesn't it doesn't actually exist and I think most people would would see that fairly clearly and we're in a vortex of actions and reactions and what awareness is trying to do is to find is to is to weave a way through that which is going to create happiness See? does that make sense so we're in this uh, we're in this sort of um, state of being in time flux but the awareness is absolutely now within the flux it's not allowing itself to build up a future from what's happening now because it knows it doesn't know what the future is in not knowing the future it then as the next moment comes up it's completely open to it because it's not trying to manipulate it and in not trying to manipulate something one sees the fullness of it yeah when one sees the fullness of it one sees the potential of it and in seeing the fullness of the potential of it one hopes that the decision made is going to produce something greater out of that situation I think uh, I'm sure everybody here has experienced the point in their lives when uh, you come to a sort of full stop and, and you don't know what to do and in that in that sort of emptiness of not knowing what to do where to go there is a certain type of openness there and then something always arises especially if you if you if you have a a general aspiration you know a, a generalized aspiration to be involved in something yeah or is that just me <laughs> yeah you see it's being able to it's, it's, it's stopping uh, presumptions from the past launching into the future and creating what we think is something real and when something comes against that projection that we've made we're always in conflict we're in conflict with it and if it happens to conjoin with our projection uh, we'll drive it to its bitter end because we don't see its consequences I mean an obvious example is this uh, this financial crash you know what was his, who was the last um, who was the last treasury guy in the States uh, the one with the glasses the one who do you do what I mean do you know what I mean names evade me I suffer from nominal aphasia huh? yes Greenspan he said didn't he he said it was just greed that nobody foresaw that the whole thing would collapse because they were still stuck in this greed that's a wonderful example of what happens you don't think things are going to end because you keep projecting it can't end it's, this is always going to be this tremendous growth of, of wealth 
they just don't see it coming and everybody you know and then the queen writes to all these economists at the london school of economics says why didn't anybody see this because we're all greedy <laughs> it's a tunnel vision isn't it very few people foresaw this collapse coming But it, it's interesting, isn't it? We have, we have such a different way of thinking about the future to thinking about the past. So we, we think the future is completely open and undetermined and not there in a way. We make it. And we think the past is all fixed and definite and that, you know, it's an absolute reality. Um, and, it's, it, it, and it's, you know, the actual situation is a lot more, a lot more fluid than that. That's right, and I think you've, you've hit the point there. What was that? Uh, Rand. Atlas Unbound or something. What was, it? What was that book? <laughs> it affected all these uh, people who were in control of their lives. What was her name? Rand? Huh? Anne Rand. That's right, Anne Rand. And the book was called Atlas Unbound, wasn't it? Atlas Shrugged. That was Atlas Shrugged, you see? And uh, it gave this, this generation of entrepreneurs and, and Silicon Valley people the feel that they could control their lives, could you know, take it in. And for the most part, the situation actually supported it. Here's the point. Sometimes the world will support your aspiration. See? But, but, then, but then we lose the, the understanding that actually it's happening because of contingency. Not happening because I'm in control. It's happening because at this particular time certain things have come together to form a situation where I, I make a million, I make a billion for myself. You know, like Zuckerman with his, with his uh, Facebook. But he might think he's done it. His idea, I've built up the empire, etc, etc. And completely loses the idea that in fact He's just one part in a whole contingency. See? So that's what, the, that's what the self does, you see. And the self does that, remember. It takes control because underneath it, at a deeper level in our psyche, we know we're not in control. We know there is death. That's the problem. So it's an evasion of death. It's a running away from death all the time. And when we say death, we don't just mean physical death. We mean ending. Yeah? Every time the day ends, that is a death. Every time you finish your lunch, every time you finish a lunch eating, just stay there for a minute and say, the meal is now dead. It has come to an end. It, it, it no longer exists. That's what it's okay. When you walk out of the house, turn around and say, that moment is dead. Keep using the word dead. And it slowly it dawns upon you that actually we're dying every moment. Yeah. Well, that's true. On uh, on the actual level of um, you know the physical the physical world and all that, but the problem is the eye doesn't change. The eye always remains the same. It's always me. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I mean, that's the problem. I never change. See, as far as I'm concerned, I'm still 35. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.